the Frio Stack Auction Service Hotline, your direct connection to the Watchdog. Conversations you care about with people you know. This is the Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe on WKKX and WVLY. Brought to you by WVU Medicine. Thursday, it's country music bumper music here on the Watchdog Morning Show. And I know that, Loretta Lynn, right? Very good, Howard. All right, Nicole Miner's daughter. Uh, 918 here on the Watchdog Morning Show. Uh, let's see, headline from Forbes magazine a couple days ago. Social Security isn't safe anymore. McCarthy claims debt ceiling raise isn't the end. Being the good Democrat that I am, uh, I am one of those ones who raise my fist and go, the Republicans shouldn't be touching Social Security. Leave Medicare alone. You can't. Don't. This is important to the American people. Leave it alone. Don't do anything about it. I'd say that politically. But despite what some of you think, I am not an idiot. I am not an idiot. And I know that something has got to be done about Social Security. came across an article in the Conversation magazine uh, written by, uh, co-written by uh, Professor Andrew Rettenmeyer uh, on Social Security, why we're in trouble, and maybe some ideas on what could be done to save, put that in air quotes, Social Security. But I can tell you the first sentence in his article, Professor, your first sentence is, Social Security is in trouble. Yes, it is. How do we get here? Why are we in such trouble? I pay into it. Why can't I get back from it? Well, you probably will get back from it. <laughs> but um, what what we're looking at now is that and, and maybe people don't realize this, but since uh, 2010, the program's tax revenues have trailed the cost of the program. That is, the program's in deficit, what we would call a cash flow deficit, where we're paying out more in benefits than we're collecting in tax revenues. More. And we can't do that forever. Now, why can we do that now, people might ask. You might say, well, if the program's in deficit, why, why don't we hear more about trying to reform the program now? Well, I have to take you back a little ways, back to 1983. The last time the program was reformed was in 1983. Wow. And at that time, the program was running cash flow deficits like it is now. But at that time, the trust fund was about to be exhausted. Currently, the trust fund that we currently have, based on the reforms from 1983 through 2009, um, the program collected excess revenues. It was collecting more in payroll taxes and, and tax, reven tax revenues that come from the taxation of benefits than it was uh, paying out in benefits. So it ran a surplus. That surplus funds, those surplus funds in each of those years was put into the Social Security Trust Fund. And that is what is allowing the program to have about 10 more years of funding 
even though it's in a cash flow deficit now. At the heart of this, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, and it gets more complicated, but at the heart of this basically is that more people are collecting than are paying in right now, and that will continue to grow as we, the baby boomers and others, age and start to pull down our Social Security, and the young folks um, aren't able to put enough in to cover what we're taking out. Is that, that's, the, that's the base of the problem. I'm sure it's more complicated, but isn't that the base of the problem? Well, it, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, a bean count that, okay. I mean, in terms of numbers, it's dollars. The tax revenues that are coming in from taxpayers is, are lower than the current expenditures. Right. Yes. I want you to be aware of the three of us who are here in the studio because I, I think we represent an interesting a trio here in the studio. I am of I am 70. I am of age. I have been collecting Social Security for a number of years. I will also say that, as I've told the audience, I'm not like some giant wealthy guy, but I don't need it. The Social Security to me is part of my fun money. I'll be honest with you. I've got a nice pension and so on. My wife is taking care of it, so that's fine. My executive producer here is a few years younger than I am. He is beginning to think about Social Security, but he's not there yet. But he's a handful of years away from it, and he wants to make sure that he's going to get his. He, he needs it, and he's been talking about it for a long time. Oh, I can hardly wait when Social Security comes in. And the third member of our team here, Professor, is our young intern, Garen, who is, I don't even want to say how, how young she is, because she's just a, just a young pup. She does, you don't even think it'll be around when you're around, right? No. She doesn't even think there'll be such a thing. So you've got three people here listening to you right here in the studio that represent three different perspectives on the need for Social Security. Is there any way to make us all happy? Um, yes. Well, that's good news. <laughs> but we, we have to, we have to uh, think about the program in a way that makes sense to each of you. Um, it needs to make sense to each American. <clears throat> um, current retirees are, uh, um, in some ways, they're collecting what we would call just a, a pension from Social Security. Right. And they're relying on it. Most um, people who are receiving ben benefits from Social Security rely heavily on it. It's a big chunk of their income each year. And without it, their, their lifestyle would be quite different. But their lifestyle right now, um, we don't want to change that lifestyle because in some ways the program has implicitly promised benefits to them, and they've planned their life around those benefits. I know some, I mean, personally, I know some, that it's all they have to live on. They didn't have a pension, exactly. didn't, didn't, didn't do a lot of savings, didn't... Uh... Uh, and so exactly. all they have every month is what comes in on Social Security. Yes. And, you know, the interesting thing about Social Security is that for people who are who had lower lifetime earnings, it replaces um, a fair amount of their pre-retirement earnings. Um, for higher income people, it replaces less of their pre-retirement earnings just because the benefit formula is progressive in that it does just that. It replaces a higher percentage of pre-retirement earnings for low-income people than it does for high-income people. And so when we think about reforming it, we really don't want to affect the benefits dramatically for people who are currently receiving benefits. 
for people who are near retirement, we also want to That's you, Bob. not change, change their benefits too much um, because they're, they've planned around Social Security. They have a particular expectation of what they're going to receive, and their savings behavior has been affected by it. And, and if we say that we're going to take benefits away or do something dramatic right now, then they will say, well, hey, I, I was already planning around this, and, and it, this just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And so most reforms are phased in over time. And so people who are, say, 55 and above, most reforms, when you look at how people write these reform proposals, they'll say everyone 55 and above is held, um, is kind of grandfathered into the current program. But you're, you're the younger person in your office. Yeah, Garen is here. Yep, she's, okay, the, so she's Garen, our young pop. Um, if, if we pay the cost of the current program, um, unchanged, then by, say, 2040 or so, the tax rate on, uh, instead of 12.4, would have to go up to um, 16.8%. And so do we want to do that? And that's one reform. One reform would just say, let's just pay the cost as they come in. But when I think about the younger people and they say, boy, look at that, you're expecting me to pay 16.8% and you guys paid 12.4%. Can we do something other than that that makes it so that the younger people don't have such a high burden when they're um, in their work years relative to the ones we experience? You know, I'm part of the baby boom, too. And we're a big generation. We were paying for a, a relative, relative to, to, to us, a smaller generation. So our tax rates, even though we paid more during our work years when we were paying these surpluses or helping finance the surpluses that are in the trust fund right now, um, those were relatively low relative to um, the 16.8 that I just mentioned for what taxpayers would have to pay in 2040. So how could we reform the program such that um, it makes sense to everyone? Well, you, you come up with four principles you think need to guide any, any kind of reform, right? Yes. Um, I, I think I'd add one, one more just, and it's one that I've already mentioned. But it, it, maybe it just would be a clarifying point is that they need to be phased in over time. Like the 1983 reforms, those benefit uh, adjustments through the higher retirement age, you know, that higher retirement age of 67, that will be fully phased in for the birth year 1960. Well, that was decided back in 1983. Now that's gonna affect me, and I was a, a young person in 1983, and I didn't really think <laughs> we're, about we're, hey, we're my all. retirement age <laughs> is going to be two years later than my uh, grandparents mm -hmm. and my parents, but it was pre-announced and I can plan my life around it. And so that would be my first principle is that they need to be phased in. The other um, programmatic changes that I think, and, and you know, you can 
if, if you think the program needs to be reformed other than just paying the cost rate of 16.8%, and, it, you know, that keeps going up, by the way. It keeps going up. So it, I, I just chose the year in 2040. But we could, that could be a reform. But you might say, hey, I know looking at the rest of the federal budget and looking at what the Congressional Budget Office forecasts, we're going to have a, a growing debt right. because we're in deficit right now. And this is Social Security is contributing to that deficit. So we're paying funds. We're, we're taking the, the trust fund bonds and basically converting them to um, a debt held by the public. We're going from um, trust fund debt to debt held by the public to finance the current uh, drawdown of the trust fund. But we, we can reform the program in, by reducing those future expenditures, especially given that Medicare is growing much more rapidly. And we need to, we need to say, hey, we're looking at a total budget. We need Social Security to uh, if we're if we're not going to tax our 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 kids and grandkids at rates that are unheard of to our generation, then we have to think about ways to reduce the expenditures in the program. But how do you do that? I mean, how, I mean, okay. Well, what, how do we reduce talk, those expenditures? Well, let's let's talk about a couple of them, and, and let's also talk about incidents. Who will bear the burden of the any reforms that we talk about. So suppose one of the principles is that we want the program to be self-sustaining, that we match the revenues and the expenditures. Like I said, we could raise the taxes to do so. So we wouldn't need a trust but, fund. We wouldn't go into the general fund. We would That the, the revenues coming in would be enough to cover uh, expenses going out. Yeah, but that implies, um, without doing something to the expenditure side, that Im- implies really high taxes. So um, the, I guess the other things that we need to think about is that we need to share the burden across generations. So how can we do that? Well, we could ask workers to pay a bit higher uh, taxes. We could do that by just a general across-the-board tax increase or one that I think that makes the most sense, and let, hear me out on this, is that, you know, right now there's a taxable max at about $160,000. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be raised um, in the following way, that such that we capture 90% of all covered uh, Social Security wages. Right now we're, we're collecting about, that, that taxable max allows us to capture about 80 385%. Let me make sure I understand my audience does. So what you're there is a dollar figure at which a high dollar figure where basically you don't see any more increases in your in your taxes your, your paycheck. you don't you don't pay taxes above that amount. Right, exactly. You, so yeah. so if you are if you make I'm if you make $200,000 a year there's I, I'm you pay the same tax rate as somebody that's making 160 right. or you're paying the same amount of taxes. Right. right. Yeah. So it would be possible to um, increase revenues by simply saying we're going to eliminate that or going to raise, if not eliminate, that uh, that high income yeah. barrier. Yeah, and I, yeah, that makes sense. If, if, I were to, if I were to be the reformer and I could do all the things that I'm talking about, I'd raise it such that we capture 90% of payroll. 
that's that's about how much we were collecting back in the 1980s. Um, but because of wage inequality, the the way that we index that taxable max hasn't grown as fast as wages at the top of the distribution. I guess the way to put it is the um, we've we've collected less because the uh, earnings above the taxable max have been growing faster than the rate at which we're increasing the taxable match, which is based on what's happening at the median mm-hmm. earnings mm-hmm. or the median earnings. So that's one reform. The other would be, um, and so that we would just index and just say, okay, we just let it go, keep it going at 90%. Now, the other if, one would if, be, I, if I'm in the higher income bracket, I'm going to kind of object to that. But basically that is a relatively painless for the bulk of America uh, well, it, it's going to affect higher income people, but it's not going to affect all the way to the, you know, I mean, it, we'd still have a taxable max, but it would be higher than it is now. Yeah, my point is you you will hear higher income folks complain because everybody complains, including me, about taxes and so on. But right. that, that's a relatively, compared to some of the other options, it's a relatively painless way to increase some of the revenue. It, I, mean, I mean, when you think of voters, I mean, it it, it, it is. Now, I'm not saying that, the, that, you know, it's going to be a higher burden on them, but, you know, the, the program, all of the re, other reforms I'm going to talk about, or another one of the reforms would also affect higher income workers. But let, let me uh, tell you about a couple more. So the other one would be that, you know, the, we're raising the retirement age to 67, right, mm-hmm. by the, the time the 1960 birth year retires. And one reform that many have talked about is is just indexing, continuing to index the retirement age to keep up with mortality gains or, or longevity gains, I should say. And, you know, if you just index it, it would be about one month for every two years. We're simply we're simply living longer is what you're saying. Therefore, yeah. we we maybe should be working longer. Sixty seven is right now the um, full benefit age. You can begin right. collecting it. Is it sixty two? You can start collecting. Yes. So you it'd be reduced benefits, but you can start collecting at sixty two. Yes. Full benefit at sixty seven. Uh, of course, one of the arguments you hear, political arguments you hear, professor, is that. Um, well, you know, geez, do we want people out there, you know, laboring in the coal mines at 68 years old or 60 or 66 years old or whatever? Well, we would still have the six. You could still retire with reduced benefits at 62, but your full retirements and, and the amount that you get at 62 would be lower. But, um, you know, that, that that reform. And again, let, let me uh, make the point that it's about one month for every two years. So. Mm-hmm. By 2035, the full retirement age would be up to 67 and a half years. I mean, so it, we're not talking about an immediate change that's going to be phased in. It's it's not, going we're not talking be, about making it 72 in five years. No. I mean, that's, that's not. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, people get really upset when they think about the, that, and, and I understand that. But we're we're phasing it in. It's going to be gradual. It's something that you can plan around. I mean, and it's an idea. You know, people are going to have other ideas, and that's one idea. But um, the the other is that we 
the current retirees can share part of the burden. You know, if this is something that we have to share across all generations, then current retirees can share part of the burden by having um, a slower cost of living increase. Um, and that would be um, in a 10 years using a, a new indexation, it would be benefits would be about 3% lower than they are today, overall benefits. So again, a phased in thing, we're using a new cost of living adjustment. Professor, I'm, and, running, I'm running short on time. There's, there's one of your principles, and I have to move on. I find this really interesting, and I think it's really critical to all of us, and I think you're giving us some good thoughts on this and maybe a better understanding of things. One of the points that you made in your so-called four principles uh, in the article that I read, which I liked, is the government should make sure the Social Security benefits will be adequate for lower-income retirees for years to come. And I think that's critical that we... We remember that there are everybody maybe is quote entitled to it if you paid into it, but the reality is that the lower income retirees need it, and that's whom we have to make sure we particularly protect. Yeah, and that the that final one and is one that the Bowl Simpson Commission, uh, you know, a number of years ago suggested that we just um, reduce the rate of growth of benefits uh, for higher income retirees. And you might say, well, the higher income are being hit in both ways in this thing. But you could either do it by taxing them more now or reducing their benefits. In this way, we're controlling the, the total cost of government, which I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that that is um, given that all expenditures are growing, especially health care expenditures and Medicare and Medicaid, then this is one way to make that happen for Social Security. Let me ask you one last question, and that is the politics of all of this, because I said at the beginning of this, good Democrat that I am, every time I hear talk of why the Republicans want to change the system, I jump up and down like all Democrats do and say, no, you can't touch that system. That protects our people. I mean, we're in a, system, we're in a society, a political society, where any kind of reform is going to be hard to get through, or am I too pessimistic? Oh, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, Social Security, you, you, you see that now, it's always been that way. Um, it's, a t it's just because we, uh, people rely on it. They, uh, as you get closer to retirement, you care much, much more about it. And these things have to be, the only way people could accept this is, if they think in the long run and they think about their kids, um, you think about the burden you're imposing on your kids. We're doing a lot of things now. I mean, all the environmental policies that we're doing now are being sold as a way to uh, ensure the benefits for future generations. And I think that's the way we have to think about Social Security. We so can, we let me let me run. Let me go. Let me go around the horn here in our studios. Uh, I'm, I'm collecting Social Security and it's, you don't see any way I'm, I'm going to be OK. You're, nobody's going to come take it away from me. Right. I'm, no matter well, what. I mean, if you, if you oh, I don't like the way you said the, that, Professor, <laughs> if you accept the, the COLA adjustments that I suggested, you know, that's how that's how the current older generation would share in the reform. Okay. Uh, okay. My producer, Bob, is a few years away from Social Security. He's going to be pretty good. He's going to be okay, basically, right? He should be able to, able to plan himself pretty well for, uh, for retirement, right? 
All right. Now we got Garen here. Garen is just a young pup. She doesn't even think it's going to be around anymore. She's still in college. But you think there's a way to work the system, not work the system, but there is a way to create a program that will provide her with benefits when she is ready to retire. Um, she may have to pay a little bit more going in, but but we can and make she, that work. Yes, depending on how much she she makes during her lifetime, she might get a little bit less than. Um, now, if me, she's a higher income person. Let me throw one more person in the mix. My eight-year-old grandson, Teddy. What's poor Teddy going to do when he retires? Well, you know, if, if he, he if he's <laughs> well, may, maybe he'll work a lot longer. Uh, no, uh, he, we, we could either say Teddy's going to pay. I look at my graph here. He's going to pay eighteen and a half percent payroll tax. I don't like that. Yeah, or. Or we revise the program such that it costs less and maybe he gets less out of it, but he has his whole lifetime to plan around those changes. Right now in his life, he just figures granddad's going to take care of him. So I, I <laughs> Maybe that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Professor, I enjoyed the conversation. I am dramatically behind time. Bob Slider is giving me the evil eye. i got to take a break. But uh, okay. thank you, sir, for joining us. Uh, maybe we'll talk some more about this as time goes by because it's, it's an important issue to all of us. And it's going to keep coming up, I think, from a political perspective. We've got to find a way to make it work. Thanks for your time today, though. I appreciate it. My pleasure. The article I found was in the magazine, the online magazine, The Conversation. Andrew Rettenmeyer is the author. Sorry, Bob.